In a moment, we'll be reading through verse 17. Verse 17. Just after my sermon, we will serve the Lord's Supper. And believers who have followed Christ in baptism should feel free to take the Lord's Supper. It'll be served by our elders just after the service, taken as an act of worship after the sermon. If you're still inquiring about Christ, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, you should not take the Lord's Supper. You should let it pass and let this be a reminder of the contrast between those who are believers in Christ and those who are skeptical still and have not received the risen Christ as both Lord and Savior. I missed you last Sunday. I was in Perrysville, Ohio, uh, just about an hour south of Akron, Akron, Ohio. Uh, Beautiful. The leaves were changing. The season had peaked. It was a beautiful time of the year. I got to spend it with uh, young adults, young business professionals that were singles and got to encourage them in the Word of God, and I was encouraged by them and their uh, questions and their concerns for, for following the Lord closely and being faithful during the time of their singleness, and uh, just really, really was encouraged by them as much as I hope that I was able to be an encouragement to them. I did miss you all, though, and it's good to be back with you today uh, and to get back to consecutive exposition of Second Corinthians. I uh, was reminded in preparing for this text for today to preach to you, I was reminded of optical illusions that were popular in the 1990s especially, like trying to find a 3D sailboat in a sea of dots. Do you remember that? Or the magic eye posters on the wall, or staring into an image until it finally appeared. Do you remember the screensaver, the Windows pipe maze screensaver? Do you remember that thing? Uh, that made out a thing that didn't look like the thing in the beginning. Uh, Or somebody's face, if you looked at it long enough and stared at it long enough, you'd see something else, although at first it looked like it was a a face. Or there was a a rabbit duck illustration that was real popular uh, in the 90s, too. Uh, There was even a picture floating around the Internet called Jesus Illusion that it had four dots right in the middle, and if you stared at those dots without blinking and then closed your eyes and then stared at the ceiling or a spot in the wall while blinking fastly, you would get an image of the classic white Anglo-Saxon Protestant picture of Jesus on the wall right before you. Do you remember that? No? I'm the only one? You've seen it? It's in there. It's called Jesus Illusion if you want to look it up. Uh, So I thought that would help us today get into the meaning of our text because I want to focus in on the word perspective. Perspective. It's an art term. It's It's a noun. Perspective is a noun. Uh, Dictionary.com says that perspective is the state of one's ideas, the facts known to a person in having a meaningful interrelationship, such as could be used in a sentence, you have to live here a few years to see the local conditions in perspective. Uh, Another way of thinking of it, uh, the dictionary says, is the faculty of seeing all the relevant data in a meaningful relationship. Uh, Your data is admirably detailed, but it lacks perspective, would be a way of using the word perspective in a sentence. And sometimes in those 1990s examples that I gave, you'd have to stare at an image long enough to have the perspective to see what the author of the drawer was intending for you to see. And that's what I'm asking from you this morning. I'm asking for you to stare at this text in its context long enough to have perspective, to have some perspective. And then I want you to continue to ask the Lord, even after this service today, to give you a godly perspective. So this sermon is all about perspective. 
And I want to ask the Lord from the onset here to give us his perspective on this text and its application. So I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we prepare to open your word, words of life, I'm asking on behalf of your sheep that you give your flock perspective. Give them perspective to have discernment from you. Give them perspective that they might be servants for you. Give them perspective that they might have hope in you. I'm asking for these things through the power of Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I prayed that way, and now I'm just going to tell you straightway. In verses 11 through 13, we're going to request perspective in godly discernment. And then we're going to see in verses 14 and 15, we're going to ask for perspective for our service in the Lord. And then in verses 16 and 17, we're going to request perspective for hope in the Lord. So three key words underneath perspective is going to be discernment, serving, and hope. Discernment, serving, and hope. And I hope that that helps you follow along with the message this morning. Listen now to the text, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 17. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. What we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your translations may say compels us, holds fast us, grounds us. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live, who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the very first stanza in verse 18 All this is from whom? It's all from God, isn't it? This is all from God. All this new creation talk is from God. So first, let's look at verses 11 through 13, and let's see perspective. We're asking for godly perspective. Perspective to see deeper than what this verse says, calls, refers to as outward appearances. As outward appearances. You see that? Poor perspective would be something like this. Believe the best in the worst kind of people. That's a poor perspective. That's a a person that is not discerning at this point with certain situations. It's seeing only the outward and not being able to discern the inward. It's an undiscerning perspective. Some people that purport to be representatives of Christ have a form of godliness, the Scripture says, but they deny the power therein. They deny the power of the gospel, they're, they're falsies, they're charlatans. But if these fakes couldn't confuse some, if they couldn't pass as sincere before some, then the New Testament wouldn't be so concerned for them now, would they? 
If you read through the New Testament, you'll see again and again warnings against false teachers. Look at 2 Peter. Look at Jude. Look at 2 and 3 John. Read the New Testament on balance. Look at Revelation. Consider the words of Jesus. Uh, Acts gives a special warning from the Apostle Paul, who's also the author of 2 Corinthians. He wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he spoke to the Ephesian elders for the last time en route to Jerusalem, which would be en route to eventually his death by beheading. And Paul told those Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that they needed to cling to the word, the whole counsel of the word of God, and pay careful attention to the flock. Why? Because after his departure, false teachers would come in and they would ravage the flock. They would spare none, that they would pull away disciples after themselves instead of after Christ. And so this text begs the question, how do we see beneath outward appearances? How do we get discernment that we might see inwardly and not simply outwardly? Well, we need that, don't we? We need that. And I don't know if there's a, a silver bullet, a, a quick answer, because a lot of times wolves hide amongst the sheep, right? Um, sometimes they may even talk about false teachers and yet be one. Uh, the false apostles were lobbing verbal grenades at the apostle Paul. They were attacking him. They're known in most literature as super apostles. And so most commentators will talk about how Paul is, is writing within this letter embedded refutation of the super apostles that were saying, well, the apostle Paul's weak. Eh, he can't trust what he said. He's not a real apostle. Uh, look, he's not as strong in the person as he is whenever he writes these letters. And why do you need to fear what he says is the gospel and so on and so forth? They, there is some sense in the undercurrent of these letters that the apostle Paul is responding for the sake of the sheep to the false allegations levied against him. And perhaps even in our text today, you might see an undercurrent of that in the text. Think again with me about verses 11, 12, and 13. I'm just going to read them again straightway. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now, just quick pause there before I read 12 and 13. Your conscience is a key indicator on how you can discern outward from inward. But your conscience needs to be sensitized by the Word of God. It needs to be heavily informed by the Word of God and in learning community across the long haul. So it says here in verse 12, then, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So this, if you look at chapter 4, you get a sense in which the, that the, those that were, were false apostles or false teachers were accusing Paul of not getting quick enough results, that he wasn't getting the results that they thought he should have had at certain times. And so they were using the relative constriction of the church and the problems within the church and the discipline needed in the church and the discipline needed in the church to then therefore lob grenades verbally at the Apostle Paul's authenticity, or at least the authenticity of his message. And so he says here, it's not that I, I want to commend myself to you again. I just want you to understand that this message that we stand for is the true gospel, and you don't need to be turned by outward appearances that doesn't indicate what's actually going on in the heart. And then he uses a phrase in verse 13, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. So if we're, if we're super amazed... It's for God, and if we're in our right mind, it's for you. It's, he's probably interacting with having been told he's out of his mind. We know that Festus said that about him in Acts 24. Paul, is, you're much learning. Are you out of your mind? So there's probably a sense here in which 
the accusation levied toward him is he's, he's not in his right mind, he's, 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 a, he's out of his mind, he's acting ecstatically, and so he's, he's beside himself. So he says, if, if I'm beside myself, it's for God, and if I'm in my right mind, it's for you. It's almost like he's, he's interacting in such a way as to say, I need you to get more discernment about who the false teachers are based on the clear teaching of the Word of God. I need you to listen to the true gospel as it's being taught from the true words of life as those apostles are being carried along to write Scripture and as the prophets of old were carried along to write Scripture that we now have in our Old Testament. Now, there's a key phrase in here under this first section of Scripture in verses 11 through 13. Look at verse 11. It says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. So he's seeking here to be persuasive. Paul is trying to persuade others about the truth of the gospel, about his pure motives, about his sound credentials based on his sound conduct. His conduct is similar to his message. It's not different. He's not conducting himself in a way that undermines his message. And he's trying to persuade others about the truth of the gospel, and we should be trying to persuade others about the truth of the gospel too. Why? Because the stakes are too high not to. Friends, without the reception of the gospel, we won't be received at the judgment seat of Christ. The stakes are too high for those that we love and care about for us to not seek to persuade others in the gospel, right? So we need to know the gospel personally, and we need to share the gospel with other persons. That's very, very important. Listen, friends, I'm, I'm asking you to be concerned about persuading others with the gospel. One author says that evangelism is aiming to persuade others by sharing the go- with the gospel, by sharing the gospel with them. And I think that's a fine definition of evangelism, sharing the gospel with others with the aim to persuade. Uh, that's Max Stiles' definition. I think it's a pretty good one. We need perspective, don't we? We need perspective whenever we are sharing the gospel. And we need a perspective that is beyond simple first things or prima facie. We need to see the depth of a person. And we're never going to see it perfectly, but we need to ask God to help us see beyond the veneer of the external. Now, worldly people will not make this easy for us because there's not anything in there of Christ yet, right? But for those of us that are blood-bought children of God redeemed, we need to make it easier for us to see what's beyond the surface, don't we? See, this is the problem with church, is after we get past the initial shocking humility of gospel conversion, we forget about that kind of basic transparency that leads to exponential growth. One of the reasons I think we grow so quickly right after we receive the gospel is the relative humility that we have to have in order to receive it. I mean, who can come to faith in Christ without being humbled, right? I mean, real faith in Christ, I mean, you're just absolutely flattened in your pride. It's, it's put aside, you're, you're humble before the Lord, but very quickly we learn to keep up with appearances. And I guess that's true in so far as it goes. I mean, we don't just want to walk around as a sort of a ball and mess all the time, now do we? But on the other hand, that veneer, that outward appearance, can at least temporarily blind us from the deeper things, the inward things. 
Now, you've been given a new heart in Christ, right? You have the tools to not be deceived. You've been given a heart of flesh. You can discern. But we need to ask the Lord to help us discern now, don't we? Help us to discern the deeper things. As God's people, we want to discern the deeper things so we can help each other to grow. As God's people also, we want to discern the the deeper things so that when faced with irrefutable evidence that someone is a poser, that someone is not actually concerned with the gospel, we can be able to say, you know, that person had an outward appearance, but that outward appearance was not connected with the heart, with the deeper things. And so we can share the gospel with that person, but we can't follow that person into sin. And the Bible is replete with examples of that. I think of Second Peter chapter 2, where there were false teachers that were leading the flock, that were leading disciples into sexual sin. And the apostle Peter, he just lays out, lays into them and lays out why, why we cannot do that, that we must stay with a biblical sexual ethic no matter what the external cost is, no matter what the outward appearance is, because that's what it means to proclaim the words of life and to, to give people an opportunity for freedom in the gospel. So I want to say, by way of this first point, that we need to be asking God for discernment. We need discernment so that we can see people more like the Lord sees people. Make that your prayer. Lord, help me to see people more like you see people. Because a poor perspective is believing the best in the worst people. A better perspective is to surround yourself with people steeped in God's word and become more spiritually discerning so you can spot wolves who would not spare the flock of God and share the gospel with them, but certainly not follow them into the abyss. Request godly discernment. Number two is constituted in verses 14 and 15, which we shall look at again. It's to ask the Lord perspective for your service, serving, servanthood, however you want to say it. And this perspective for service means that we see salvation as transformational rather than simply transactional. And I think that's a key phrase, and so I'm going to say it again. What we need for this perspective to be a servant instead of simply being served is to see our salvation as transformational rather than simply transactional. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind, the book of Romans chapter 12 says, rather than conform to the pattern of this world. This again goes back to a, the attitude of humility that you have at gospel conversion. When you're converted in the gospel, you're not converted without being humble. I mean, you're humbled by Christ's goodness and and your badness. You're humbled by the fact that the Lord would see fit from the foundations of the earth to make a way for you to have the gospel for salvation. But again, over time, we tend to get functional enough that we have a veneer of all rightness and need to be reminded again and again and again that heart issues are deeper than simply outward appearances. And the perspective that is needed in this as we're asking God for perspective for service is to see salvation as transformational rather than simply transactional. Now, there is a transaction that takes place, right? It's, it's the sweet substitution of Christ's work for yours. That on the day of judgment, he'll be your advocate, First John 2, 1 and 2 says. And so he's going to be your advocate and advocate for your salvation because you are in him on the last day. So that, that's true enough. That's transactional. But our lives over the course of balance, is, it's not got to be a transaction after a transaction after a transaction. It's transformation based on the finished work of Christ that's already been transacted to you. 
And so over the course of your life, you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. A poor perspective is our conclusion about Christ compels us as believers to live for ourselves instead of for one another. Listen again to these verses. Maybe it'll make sense after we read verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Key in on that first phrase, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. So it's not just a transaction that has happened. It's an ongoing controlling or a compelling that comes from the love of Christ. And the reason why that love compels us is that we have reached some intellectual and heart conclusions, some mind-soul conclusions about Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what's coming in verse 14 and the second half and in verse 15. Because we have concluded these things about Christ's work on our behalf, therefore then, the love of Christ continues to control us. It continues to compel us, and I would say to service, to godly service. So we're asking God for perspective for service. Really, we're asking the Lord today to give us a perspective that then motivates service. And it is a, a service that is not in order to earn God's favor. It is a service because God has already showed us grace, because he has already showed us favor in giving his son for us and ensuring our salvation in the gospel. And so Christ's shining example of self-sacrifice, sacrificial devotion, then motivates us to serve because of our union with him. See the logic again in verse 14. The logic of verse 14 is because we have concluded the following, then the love of Christ controls us. It, it compels us. It holds us fast. It becomes our norming norm, our, our perspective above all, to use the word of the day. So this love of Christ, Christ-like love, becomes our perspective. Your heart needs to be affected by or controlled by the love of Christ. So, so how do you define a love of Christ? That's what the first John passage that's in our readings today is about. Our service leader had the charge to read 1 John 4, 9 to 12. Love is defined as in your place sacrifice for someone else's mistakes or sins. Love is doing for another what they don't deserve and what they very likely cannot pay you back for. That's Christ's definition of love. It's serving a, a person that doesn't deserve to be served. And when that kind of love controls us, beauty comes into flower. Beauty comes into flower. I'm reminded of pastor and author Tim Keller, who wrote a book on marriage. And one of the things that he said about marriage is that you have the prospect of a truly beautiful marriage when each person in the marriage decides that they might be the bigger problem in the marriage than the partner. Because then what happens is if, if I decide I'm a bigger problem than my wife, and if she simultaneously and consi consistently decides she's a bigger problem than me, then she's not trying to fix me and I'm not trying to fix her. 
I'm fighting my own sin. She's fighting her own sin. And so I'm looking for ways to serve her, not because she deserves to be served, but because that's, that's just the shtick. That's what we do. And in that, what Keller says is remarkably, you wind up over time with a healthier marriage because you're not blaming the other person. You're taking responsibility. And, you know, Christ didn't have to do that for us, but that is the definition of the love of Christ, isn't it? He takes responsibility for us when we have no way of paying him back. No way of paying him back. That's one of the reasons we have to fight for our marriages is so we don't preach a false gospel in our deeds to the watching world. We have to fight for our marriages so that they see the love of Christ is our controlling norm in the day-to-day, in the week-to-week, and the year-to-year. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 talks about this day-by-day. It says, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. And you see that? Day-by-day. A day-by-day renewal. Um, so it's not that you're retransacting salvation. No, it's that salvation is coming to full fruition in your body as you're being transformed into Christ's likeness, into Christ's likeness. The systematic theology book we have at the bookstall is set up with similar seven parts as many other systematic theologies have been throughout history. The seven parts of a doctrines of one, the word, two, God, three, man, four, Christ and the Holy Spirit, five, redemption, six, the church, and seven future, future things. If you were to read that systematic theology in its fifth section, the section on the doctrine of redemption, you would see including in that an order of salvation, articulating salvation as transformational for the entirety of the Christian life and not simply and only reducible to a transaction. And you would see as you read through that also an understanding of death and the intermediate state from Scripture, our glorification in heaven and Finally, a great little 10-page chapter on union with Christ. They answer questions in that chapter like, what does it mean to be in Christ or to be united with Christ? This union with Christ is the theme of our text here in 2 Corinthians 5, especially in verses 14 and 15. We are in Christ. We are in God's eternal plan during Christ's life on earth, during our lives even now. During our lives now, you are united with Christ. Think about that. Dying and rising with Christ, new life in Christ, all your actions can be done in Christ. We are one body in Christ. Perhaps the boldest analogy of all is used by Jesus himself in John 17, 21, when he prays for believers, and here's what he says, that they may may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also... May, that they also may be in us, John 17, 21. Think about that, that union with Christ. He prays that we may all be one as he is one in the Godhead. Jesus prayed for the unity that we would be like his perfect unity, the unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the Godhead in the Trinity. And this is a reminder to us that our unity should be eternal and perfectly harmonious, that we should be pursuant of unity that looks like our God. The systematic theology I referenced also mentions questions for personal application on the doctrine of our union with Christ underneath the doctrine of redemption. And here's some of the questions that they ask. I think they're great application questions for us today. Have you thought of yourself as being united with Christ from the point of God's election of you to the point of you being with him forever in heaven? 
Does this change the way you think of yourself and your own life? Have you thought about the difficulties that you may be experiencing at this time in light of the doctrine of the union, of your union with Christ? In what ways can the idea of having died with Christ and having been raised with him be an encouragement to you in your present efforts to overcome sin that remains in your life? Have you previous to today thought of doing the actions that you do each day as in Christ, like Philippians 4.13 says? How would it change your attitude? Or to use the nomenclature of the day, how would this doctrine of the union of Christ change your perspective in this moment, in the day by day? Doing daily work for Christ, carrying on conversations with friends or with family in Christ, eating in Christ, even sleeping in Christ. Do you have an awareness in your day-to-day life as your inner self is being renewed? Do you have an awareness of life in Christ, of Christ living in you? Think of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This motivates us to service in our setting in the day by day and becomes part of God's means to transform us increasingly into his likeness over the course of our lives. What would change in your life if you had a stronger awareness of Christ living in you throughout today? Dear friends, love is not about convenience taking all you can take before moving on to a lower cost deal to you. No, that's not love. The love of Christ that controls us is a self-giving, not a self-serving. The love of Christ that controls us is a love that seeks not what we can get, but what we can give. What love is this? This is the point of the application of the gospel in this text. Look at verse 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, Christ, who for your sake died and was raised again. Look at the doctrine of your union of Christ. Look to Christ himself and learn about service. That Christ died for your sake and that compels you to live for their sake. And that makes all the difference. How can the idea of union with Christ increase your love and fellowship for other Christians in the church? How can it increase your love and fellowship with other Christians in the church? Verses 14 and 15. A poor perspective for our second point is that our conclusion about Christ compels us as believers to live for ourselves to get what we can get now. Because after all, we punched our ticket to heaven and we're on the train. That's not a good perspective. A better perspective is our conclusion about Christ compels us as believers to live for one another. To live for one another. That imbibes 1 John, doesn't it? That we love one another. That imbibes Ephesians 4, 3, where we seek eagerly to maintain the unity that the Spirit has given us through the bond of peace. So we're maintainers of this unity, not creators of it. So as we are identifying those who are in Christ and entering into covenant membership together, we are seeking to maintain that unity through the bond of of peace that Christ has given us. So our better perspective is our conclusion about Christ's love compels us to live for one another and not simply for ourselves. Thirdly and finally, 
It's to request godly hope. And don't snooze on me with this point because I think it's the most compelling. It's to request godly hope. I couldn't come up with a better way to state the third point than hope, but it really doesn't get at it. So I'm going to try to get at it now. Listen to verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Let's just stop after verse 16. Our perspective needs to change that we might play an active part in the changing of God's people across time, that we might be less cynical. Very often, we have a cynical attitude toward the other people at church. And sometimes that's because we aren't seeing the kind of change we want to see in ourselves, what we want to see, and so we impose that lack of change on others. Sort of like the old adage, misery looking for some company. So a poor perspective would be believing the worst in the best people, the people that God's redeeming. Now all metaphors break down. The people that are charlatans are not fundamentally in the doctrine of man worse people than us in our sin, but we're being redeemed, right? I mean, God has given you a new heart, has he not? So in a way, I can say, without bragging on me, but bragging on Christ, that you need to stop believing the worst about the best people. I mean, God has redeemed you. The work of his son Christ is, has been applied to you. His accomplishment has been applied to you. So we must not regard any longer the believers according to the flesh. Now, can we? Remember, this book is written to church members. It's written to the church at Corinth. It's not written to unbelievers. Certainly, unbelievers can read the words of Scripture and be led to salvation through that. But fundamentally, he's writing a letter to people that have already professed faith in Christ. And so when he writes something like verse 16, he's saying, we regard no one according to the flesh. Before we were saved, we regarded Christ according to the flesh. He was not our Savior. But since we've been gospelly converted, born again, born anew, then we're in this day-by-day transformative process where we're not being conformed to the pattern of the world, but we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind day-by-day because we don't see Christ merely regarding him according to the flesh any longer. We see the spiritual components of our existences as we are wrapped up in Christ. We don't regard one another according to the flesh anymore. That is a great medicine for cynicism in the body of Christ, isn't it? I'm reminded of the parable in Matthew 18. The one who experiences mercy shows much mercy. Do you remember that one? It's the end of Matthew 18. You ought to read it this week. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. The one who experiences much mercy shows mercy. In the parable, a man gets exposed for wanting to escape the consequences of his debt, but then he doesn't share the heart of the forgiving lender. And this man in this parable had worldly grief, we can surmise, consequence management, but this man did not have a godly grief, that is, forgiveness of sin. And so he didn't receive mercy, thus making him merciful. He received forgiveness of his debt, but then turned around and wanted to be a slave driver. And so in the end, he gets his due penalty. A forgiven one forgives. It's one of the way across time that we have assurance of salvation is we have been shown mercy, and so we're merciful. We've been forgiven, and so we forgive. One of the ways across time we start to see God's work inside of us is we become less cynical 
about the process of change that God has our fellow believers on, and we become more optimistic, or there's that word hope, we begin to have a perspective of hope, not regarding the other believers according to the flesh, but regarding them as finished as works of Christ that will be finished on the day of the Lord, and we regard ourselves as instruments in the Redeemer's hands to impress that gospel of grace on them day by day and week by week and year by year, same as you would as a good spouse in a marriage. Friends, don't rob your fellow believers of the benefit of your insights into their sanctification. We need to learn to talk to the Lord more about the person and then talk to the person about the Lord instead of talking to persons about a person. The root of bitterness must not grow up among us to metastasize and defile many. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Discipline differently is the Lord's love in our lives. It's a remedy for bitterness. And the outflow of bitterness is gossip, and gossip is toxic to community. Gossip makes community unhealthy. And I believe that this text helps us in this way because we see that our, the way that we regard one another is no longer according to the cynical flesh, the condemned flesh, but because there's no more condemnation for those of us that are in Christ, we therefore have the liberty and the freedom to regard one another as works in progress, in process, and help one another progress in becoming like Christ. Don't you see how different that is of a perspective for you? Day by day, week by week, and year by year. It's no longer about gotcha. It's about we're fellow believers and we're on a journey together to the Lord's side. We're on a journey together and we see inside and not just outside. So a perspective would be to believe the worst in the best people. A better perspective would believe the best in God's people, trusting the slow process of change of spirit-guaranteed progress in holiness. Believe people can change. Help God's people and be helped by God's people that you might grow in the grace of Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus, both in grace and in truth. All this change and being changed, all of this overcoming strongholds of sin, all of this reconciliation. Verse 18a says, this is all from God. All this is from God. Be refreshed, God's children. Listen to verses 17 and the first part of 18. Here at the end. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus? If not, I invite you to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus this morning, become in Christ. I invite you to that. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved this morning. You do it from right where you are. We can talk after church. Be saved. Enter into this journey of salvation. For all you covenant members in the church that long since know what I'm talking about, I say this to you. Are you in Christ? If that is a yes, you're a new creation. You are a new creature. You are not defined by your creation and sin and fall. You're, crea- you're defined by the recreation, by the redemption, by your future glorified body. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your eternal state has been begun. It's been inaugurated. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And all of this is from God. And so God's children, 
You get to be part of this. Though we're outwardly wasting away, we're inwardly being renewed, being made beautiful. And in the twinkling of an eye, you're going to be with Christ and you're going to be like Christ. And you're going to get a resurrected body like he got a resurrected body. And in glorification, you're going to have a body that matches your then sinless heart. And your Redeemer is going to redeem you, your whole body and soul, as a union. This is what Christ has done for you. I think we can take communion now, don't you? Let's bow our heads and pray. As our elders come, Lord, help us to see perspective for hope to see perspective for discernment, to see perspective for service. We won't see people like you see people without your help. We won't serve like you taught us to serve without your day-by-day help. And we won't hope for other people and regard people as new without your help. We need it. And we're asking for it this morning. Your word says that we have not because we ask not. And so we are remembering to ask you to give us perspective this morning that we would not have if you did not clear the view for us that we might see you and we might see one another like you want us to. I pray for these things in Jesus' name.